Hello, listeners. This is your spoiler warning. We will be spoiling Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. It's going to be tough emotionally when the hard rain hits and we have to say goodbye to all that was. It's going to be tough afterward when the Arkers have to learn how to work together and make hard choices. By far the biggest challenge humanity has ever faced, but we'll survive. We'll use what's up there to build incubators for our heritage to live in, to grow, and to improve on what we brought with us. And eventually the day will come when we return. By that point, many generations will have devoted all of their hopes and their creative genius to the problem of remaking the world as well as, or better than, what we see here. The real goal is to build Earth again and build it better. Welcome to the Book Club Podcast. Today we are discussing Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. I'm Caroline, and I absolutely love the can-do attitude of this book. They take on a huge project. Earth is going to be destroyed. People are going to have to live in space for 5,000 years and then repopulate Earth. And they do it. I'm Carly, and I love this book. I love Stevenson and his very intricate descriptions of how technology works. Hi, I'm Christy, longtime listener, first time discussant, and I'm really excited about the questions in this book about what it means to be human and what parts of being human do we think are the most worth preserving. Surprise! Welcome, Christy, our first guest. Yes, welcome, Christy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. All right, so the book is divided into three parts. The first part begins when the moon explodes in an unpredictable and ultimately unexplained catastrophe. A woman named Dina is on the International Space Station developing robots to mine asteroids. A woman named Ivy is her supervisor. On Earth, there's a man named Doc Dubois, who is a scientist and TV personality, and he witnesses the moon explode while at a fundraiser in Los Angeles. He figures out that the fragments of the moon will continue to collide and break into smaller pieces at an exponential rate, until they form a white cloud of fiery debris called the hard rain that will make life on the earth impossible for thousands of years. And they realize they have about two years before this is going to happen. The nations on earth then coordinate to save as many people, cultural artifacts, and genetic material as possible up on the space station. Dr. Dubois estimates that they only have two years to do this. The plan is to have a lottery where, with a young man and young woman from each country chosen to live in small habitats up there called arclets. And together they will form the cloud arc. I say Dinah. I'm probably not going to be able to break that habit. So Dinah's family are miners and they prepare to survive 10,000 years underground. Ivy suspects her fiance, Cal, who has control of a submarine, is building a shelter deep in the ocean. In part two, Dr. Boss spends the year before the hard rain on the cloud arc working on a plan to move the space community to one fragment of the moon with a deep valley that can protect them from radiation and asteroids. Arklets arrive with lottery winners beginning to occupy them. The people on the space station say their final goodbyes to their friends and family on Earth. Marcus, the new leader on the space station, declares the Earth dead. And shortly after, they find the former U.S. president, Julia, stowed away in an old space shuttle, having violated all the treaties. And the structure holding all the human genetic material has been damaged and exposed to space. While Marcus and Dinah go to wrangle a comet of ice to bring back as propellant, uh, Julia, the former president, is manipulating a class division between Arkies 
the tributes living in arklets, and the professionals on the space station. The swarm arklets are able to grow food, and the endurance isn't, so there are occasional trades between the two of them. But after three years, only 28 people are left on the endurance. Ada is the new swarm leader, and she tells them that there are 11 people remaining out of 800. She is visibly starving, and she asks to join the endurance on cleft. They have resorted to cannibalism to survive. Ada and her group join the endurance under false pretenses. They attack the crew, and they cause even more casualties. Dr. Bois is able to make one last spacewalk on the cleft, where he imagines the future dome city before he dies of cancer from radiation from all of his time in space. There are eight women surviving. Louisa, who has already been through menopause, so can't be one of the seven Eves. The seven are Ivy, Dinah, Moira, Tecla, Camilla, Julia, and Ida. They come to an agreement that each Eve will be able to genetically engineer one trait that she would like passed on to her offspring, in addition to fixing uh, degenerative diseases that they're aware of already in the genetic material of the women and the other samples that they have. So from there, we jump 5,000 years forward. Very bold. (laughs) The seven Eves have succeeded in their intentions, and they've created seven races with distinct characteristics. The Dinans, for example, named after Dinah, tend towards leadership. The Ivans, after Ivy, value intelligence. The Moirans are unique in that they have the ability to adapt dramatically to their environment using epigenetics. The Teclans are physically strong and disciplined, while Ada, or the Aidens, had many children who compete with the children of the other, of Dinah, Ivy, Tecla, and Mora. In fact, one of her experiments was to recreate Neanderthals who could compete with the strength of the Teclans. Camites are non-aggressive, designed for living in close quarters in space, whereas the Julians, after Julia, are strategic but at times a bit paranoid. All the seven races live and cooperate together with ease. It's treated as different cultures, almost. The time between when the moon was destroyed and when the endurance arrived at cleft is called the epic. Videos from the swarm and the space station taken during this time are shown constantly in public spaces and told like Bible stories. So at this time, 5,000 years in the future, a ring of habitats rotates around the Earth, housing 3 billion humans. The seven races have segregated themselves into different habitats and eventually split into red and blue, two nations that don't really communicate with one another. They have cleaned up the space around Earth and captured ice comets to refill the oceans. They've genetically engineered plant and animal life. And there are also people living on New Earth, having landed illegally as soon as the atmosphere was breathable. And those folks are called indigens. Our new character, Kath 2, is a surveyor collecting data on how the genetically engineered flora and fauna are adapting on the surface. She's recruited to a mission to explore New Earth in the area where Uh, she saw a human from an unknown community. There's a group of seven, one person from each of the seven races, exploring this area, and they are approached by a young Ivan indigen named Einstein, who tells them he knows of an artifact from before the moon exploded. He tells them it was an 18-wheeler, and he shares his theories on how it survived. But when they arrive at the spot, they discover it has already been excavated by a tribe of diggers who they determine are descendants of Dinah's family who built a shelter deep underground to survive the hard rain. And the diggers attack them, killing two of their members. The Julian team member, 
reveals that she's a secret agent from Red and escapes to space. Kath 2 goes into hibernation and then Red sends a delegation full of pomp and circumstance. The survivors of the Seven and Einstein escape during that ceremony. Then we meet one of my favorite characters, a digger teenage girl who has memorized the Encyclopedia Britannica from sonar to tax law. And she tells the remaining delegation that the diggers were on their way to the coast to respond to a message left by the pingers, people who live in the ocean. So this girl, the psych, uh, gives them a history of the diggers because their underground shelter was limited. They developed a culture with very strict rules around procreation. As a representative of the blue, the team rushes to meet the pingers, who are the descendants of Cal, who have evolved to live successfully in the ocean the same way that the diggers have evolved successfully to live underground. The book ends uh, with the sort of tacit acknowledgement that there are actually now 13 races, counting the two new races, the diggers and the pingers, plus the multiple sub-races of Ada, including the Neanderthals. And uh, we understand that Ty and many of the other characters who are a little more shadowy are serving something they call the purpose, the theory that humans have a higher calling. So I also get to ask the opening question today. And as I hinted at, one question I'm very curious about is how we think Stevenson wants to limit what he's willing to call human. I think in Stevenson's view, he considers all of these characters to still be a kind of human, but there's a huge range between them. And in some cases, 5,000 years of no genetic intermixing between them. So I think there's a, a question about what does it mean to be human? But there's also another question of the deliberate preservation of certain characteristics by the seven eaves, as opposed to sort of the, the deliberate preservation of characteristics that the diggers, I think, are just doing through rules on who's allowed to procreate or something like what the pingers did, which is additional genetic modifications to, to what the next generation of human beings looks like. So Carly and Caroline, thanks for having me here. And I'm excited to hear what your ideas are. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Stevenson seems to think they are all still human. Uh, and they, you know, they all share some common trait. I do want to mention that the pingers, probably out of all of the groups of people, who are pretty different from another, but the pingers are the most so, right? They seem to, they sound more like mermaids and mermen, right? They have different skin, maybe different breathing apparatus. There were a number of things uh, that would suggest they are physiologically very different at this point. Right. They have skin flaps to cover their sensitive organs and orifices. That's right. Yeah. To swim in the water. Like they can't communicate as well because they communicate very high pitched sounds. And it's the only race that requires a translator, really. So that creates distance too. I almost want to say that the communication more than like the genetics is what separates them. Because they can't, how do you form a treaty? How do you form an alliance? If you can't communicate, which they can, they figure out how to talk to each other. But it just it, it adds an extra layer of complication. I'm going to suggest as alternatives for the most distant from what we think of maybe as the rootstock humans, the partially Neanderthal race seems perhaps not quite as far as mermaids, mermen, but 
still very different. And also the Moirin's ability to have epigenetic huge changes that they undergo in their lifestyle is one of the coolest ideas in the book, but also something that makes me wonder how different from a human being as we think of them is someone who can basically go into a kind of hibernative state and then perhaps completely change their entire personality, their interests, their abilities in a very short number of weeks while they're sort of going through a a huge individual shift that, as it's described in the story, sometimes makes people unrecognizable almost even to their loved ones as the person that they were before this shift occurs. And we see it with the character of Kath 2 becoming Kath 3. And she's similar in some ways, but I think we're supposed to understand that shifts can be even larger than the one she experiences. And the one she experiences is very large. That is a good point, because I would think consistency of personality is very important for how humans relate to one another, and therefore for maybe what it means to be human. Well, yeah, and they, she says, Kath 2 is dead. Kath 1 is dead. Like that, that person is gone, but she still has the memories of that person, which is interesting. And then, I mean, there was that moment where they're traveling from space to this location where Kath 2 first saw what we know as a digger. And they stop on this island, which is like, I think in Polynesia, and there are, there's a community of Moirans and Camites there, and they have this very strong reaction to the Moirans who have adapted to the location. Like they're very slow speaking, and they spend a lot of time studying the sky and the wind and the plants. Kath too feels race. She says, "Oh, this is what racism is: this alienation from another human, <laughs> and how weird that was." Like, I just wanted to bring that up as like these Moirans are unrecognizable to the community in space. Even to other Moirans, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a particularly interesting example because to answer the opening question, I would say that the love of Earth seems to be shared by all the humans. And that's certainly very strong at the beginning of the book where we see Earth threatened and where they develop this ideal of we'll go into space and then we'll come back and we will reseed Earth and regrow the plants recreate the animals. We have our standard solar punk trope about the beauty of the breeze mm-hmm. and you know standing on earth and being able to feel that because you don't get that in the space stations. So I, I would suggest that is at least a defining factor is love of the earth. Alad, I was really surprised that there's a little team that leaves the cloud arc to go and try to settle on Mars. And you could imagine another book that went in that direction. But in this book, it was like, nope, that's a non-starter. Those people are probably all dead and (laughs) we're not going to focus. This isn't another story about how humans can terraform Mars and make Mars like another Earth. This was very much a story about we have gotten kicked off the planet through no fault of our own, but how do we get back? Yeah. Because we love it so much. That's what we're interested in. Well, is it love it so much or is it cannot possibly exist somewhere else, right? Well, they are existing in space, right? So they could they could go anywhere in space, right? Yes. And Kath Tube's traveling around on this huge station where they have these replicated environments. What, do you remember when she goes to find uh, yes. Doc, her, her mentor? And she's, it's like walking city blocks. And it, like one block is a desert and one block is a jungle. 
But I think that was all built that's testing out these plants and animals so that they can then be sent to Earth. And then there was also a mention of a philosophical argument about how to reseed Earth. Do they want to completely recreate animals the way that they were before the moon was destroyed? Or do they want to create something like those animals and let them evolve naturally? I mean, I think there's a parallel there of, first of all, the Moirans have like a speeded up way of letting their genetics respond to the environment. They can do it several times in one lifetime. But I think that's what we expect to see of, of all the humans returning to Earth. Like Kath too, while she's experiencing the breeze and the sunrise, she thinks to herself, have humans evolved past the point of being able to be on Earth? There's so much stimulus. There's so much air and light and smells. And as humans who have lived on in space for thousands of years, can they even come back to Earth? She kind of questions that a bit. And so it's, I think there's a lot going on with like the whole epigenetic conversation that the animals and the plants have to go and bounce off of each other and react to each other and, and then evolve. And that will develop a whole new ecosystem. And it feels like my assumption was that's what's valuable about Earth is that you have all of this complexity where life can evolve and iterate and that's where humans belong in that kind of environment. I really loved how the idea of Earth as a character changed between the two parts. Right In the first part, Earth is something that's about to be destroyed, that we have to get away from. And there's this focus on, well, how do we do that without losing everything? And then you get this huge shift with the bold 5,000-year leap, right, where Earth is this thing that they're deliberately trying to figure out how do we, in some sense, preserve sort of what's sacred and beautiful about the earth, but also recognize that it can't be what it was before. Yeah, it's kind of tragic, right? Because they've spent 5,000 years hanging around, preserving what genetic material they could, the plants and animals, to take it back to earth. And now you know, you, you come face to face with the realization you can't do that. You can't preserve perfectly anything in the past. It's it's going to be different. But but that's true now. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, Curly, what you said about have we evolved past the earth? There was that comment, but I think there were also a number of comments to the effect that humans evolved, you know, for the earth, on the earth, in this type of environment. And that is still so deep seated that the 5,000 years haven't gotten rid of that. Even with a deliberate attempt, especially in the early generations on the part of some of the Eves to make their children extra suited for survival away from Earth, right? So this distance that Kath too experiences at the beginning is in part a fact of 5,000 years of being away, but in, in part a fact of deliberate choices over thousands and thousands of years of people trying to make their culture and their children have a, a way to thrive away from Earth, which actually I think makes the Moirans, in a sense, the ones that are probably most able to reconnect because of this interesting ability to epigenetically reinvent themselves. And so Kath too is such an interesting character because she, in a sense, has a capacity within her lifetime to experience a way of fitting better in a circumstance that she's dropped into that normally it, it at least takes like a few generations for someone else to get there. There's an interesting comment about Einstein as well. So Einstein is the young Ivan who was born on New Earth and lives there. And then he immediately falls in love 
with the sick, the the teenage digger. So Ty is observing them and sees like Einstein is pretty smart, but if he tried to go to space and be with his fellow Ivans up in space, he would be considered like backwater. His intelligence would not be valued up in space because he'd be competing with a different kind of intelligence. But but when he talks to the sick, like they can share information with each other in a way that's very satisfying because they were both born on Earth. The indigents have been on Earth for maybe 100 years. So that is a couple of generations where they've sort of created their own culture. But that was interesting, too. I don't know. Is there something tragic in losing the space culture, too? Should we feel sad about that? That's a good point. I mean, it's a highly effective culture, right? It has a lot to offer. It's 5,000 years old. I don't think everyone will come back to Earth. And I don't think Stevenson necessarily wants us to think that they will. But I think there is this possibility. And it would be interesting to see if certain of the races decide to be more permanently space-like or other races decide to be more permanently ground-like. That's something you could imagine happening as the space people come down to Earth and think, you know what, maybe... Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I like space life better. It does seem that there will be still more division in the human race. Like you've had thousands of years. It, it seems of this one drive for 3 billion people is to get back to Earth. Maybe that's not the right interpretation. But once you have people actually living on Earth, that motive is gone. You've succeeded. So then what happens? You mentioned in the introduction or the summary that Stevenson really loves to describe the infrastructure and the vehicles that everyone gets in and the technology that they're using. He really goes in depth on all of that. But one of the functions of that, or something I noticed, is that when he's describing the Earth as it sits in space, it now looks different from a distance. It has a ring now, right, from the leftover, you know, basically an asteroid belt leftover from the moon. And it also now has these orbiting human structures, right, that are huge. It is not the same Earth. It does not even look like it anymore. And yet the breeze <laughs> yet is the still breeze. there. The experience of the breeze by the human is still there. I'd like to talk about a, a quote. I feel like this has been around this whole conversation. Dr. Wa says to Julia that even if we had perfect knowledge of every single one of those statistical parameters, we still wouldn't be able to predict the future because we have an N of one, only one cloud arc, only one easy to work with. We can't run this experiment a thousand times to see the range of different outcomes. We can only run it once. The human mind has trouble with situations like that. We see patterns where they don't exist and we find meaning in randomness. And I thought that was really intriguing. The earth is an N of one, right? And that's true for us. That's been true in all of our solar punk books as we talk about how to build a better culture and society. It just like is really extreme in this book that only having one chance is just so stark and not having a backup plan and restoring the earth is the plan. So I feel like that's what I've been like struggling with in, in this whole season of solar punk is like you have to decide how you're going to spend your time and you have to decide where your focus is going to go and you can't know what the answer is. And you can't know statistically what the best route is in many cases. So it's, it feels like it's just, it's always an N of one. I was just wondering if you all resonated with that as much as I did. I love that quote because it's very much reminding us of the limits of our knowledge and the limits of our ability to predict things, even when we really want to be able to predict things. But I actually found the second part a little more optimistic 
in that we do find the diggers and we do find the pingers. And there's a way in which I think the suggestion is that we actually did have more than one shot. And and it's easy to tunnel vision into thinking space is the shot, right? Um, but it was a good thing, I think, that the diggers got perhaps literal tunnel vision. This is yeah. <laughs> this is our one shot. And Cal, knowing he's never going to go up into space, right, thinks, okay, I'm going to take this shot. Um, and there's something, again, and, and things that I think make humans distinctly humans or things that we want to preserve. I, I kind of loved that Cal didn't just say, oh, well, I've been given my job and I'm going to do my job or the Dinah's descendants didn't say, we'll, we'll send everything up into space and, and we'll make that our mission. There's sort of people all along the way who aren't going along with the plan, but that's a good thing because and different things end up getting preserved and different things end up getting to change and make a difference. So I thought it was a little more stark in the first part, this idea that we've got one shot and when you get down to the room at the end of the second part and, and there's seven women, eight women, seven who can reproduce and no men, and you think this is it, this is humanity's chances in this room right now. But then later on, you get to realize actually there was more than that. There were other people who had other ideas who were who were trying to save different things. So I found that very stark in the first part. And then when I took a break between the 5,000 years, I got to come back and say, oh, if Dinah had gotten feisty and blown up the women in the room just because she was feeling like a vengeful goddess, I think is the phrase, that actually wouldn't have been the end. It would have been the end of something, but there were other beginnings in other places as well. Carly, did you think that when you found out about the diggers and the the pingers or did it still feel like so much of the preservation of what was human came from the space and the space cultures and the the descendants of those people what stood out to me is the diggers say you guys abandoned earth you mutants abandoned earth and fled and so the earth is ours now and my thought was we just learned that the spacers have been meticulously cleaning up the asteroids so that you know, they sped up the process so that they could come back to Earth thousands of years earlier. Like Doc Dubois predicted that the hard rain would be 5,000 to 10,000 years. And so essentially they like sped it up and, and shortened that time frame by using their technology to remove bolides and to then send ice to refill the oceans and to reseed the flora and fauna on the planet. And, and so I wonder... How much longer could the diggers have survived underground if they couldn't come out and breathe the air and hunt the animals and eat the plants that were salvaged by the people in space? Yeah, they might not have been able to go the next 5,000 years, whereas it seems like the people in space kind of could have been in a, a more indefinite holding pattern, whereas the digger culture doesn't seem like a great place. And another 1,000 or 2,000 years of that might might not have lasted. The pingers we know less about, I think, but I think Stevenson kind of indicates that they might have had something that could be a little bit more long-term. But you're right, in some sense, the diggers, they might not think of it this way, but they are going to hugely benefit from what the spacers did. Well, that's true, but in, its, in a way, they've all worked together to recreate the sort of complex environment that the Earth 
provided originally, right? Like they're all providing different inputs that none of them are really controlling because it's other people and other cultures doing it. And it is producing the same sort of complex environment that you used to get on earth, either in terms of the physical environment, plants and animals, but then also the very complex cultural environment that people create. So it's a bit of an aside, but if you had to choose between being a spacer, a digger, or a pinger, what would you choose? These are all hard choices, right? (laughs) I want to be a Moirin specifically. I think that's so awesome. I don't know if I could handle the idea of my current self dying and there being a lack of continuity with my next self. I think that would actually be kind of hard. For me, that life in space, the first couple hundred years or whatever it was, maybe the whole thing seemed awful. There was a part of me who was like, "Ah, just let me die on Earth. Like, yeah, (laughs) you know, let me die in the environment I was designed, you know, built for looking up the sky. I maybe I'm too claustrophobic for that spacer stuff. Well, all of them are claustrophobic. Right. That's why I'm going to just die on the surface. (laughs) I'm not going under the ocean. I'm not going into a hole. I like to think I'm not being too influenced by the recent Little Mermaid movie, but I feel like the pingers might actually have had it the best, right? Like once you could evolve to be able to be out in the water, right? Like it wouldn't feel so claustrophobic. And also deep sea is so interesting, right? It, It seems like if you could get to the point that you could function pretty well underwater. It, it would be a very different life from being on earth in the ground, but uh, diggers are definitely my last choice, right? Like I would choose, I might even choose being part Neanderthal before I would choose to insert myself into what we see of the digger culture, even though I love the idea of somebody's life being as a living encyclopedia. I'm just going to know everything from this part of S to this part of T and that's that's my job. There's something I do think kind of charming about that, but the lived experience of it doesn't seem like it would be very good. The Neanderthal, I'm really curious, you keep bringing this up, Christy, because the Neanderthal character that we got, he's interesting. Like, he's intelligent. He has a sense of humor. So I'm just curious, like, why that stands out to you. I think it was less about the character that we see who's a Neanderthal 5,000 years into this and more imagining what the first couple generations of Neanderthal looked like and what their kind of experience was. Clearly, there's still a lot of racism, I think, directed more towards the Neanderthals than the other races. Um, So clearly the people who aren't Neanderthal are responding to the Neanderthals in a very different way than they're responding, Mm -hmm. I think, to the other descendants of Ada. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I I definitely felt that the Neanderthal character that we actually got to see didn't necessarily seem like he was representative of Neanderthals. And even he seemed like it had been rough, right? That most people weren't treating the Neanderthal descendants, the partially Neanderthal descendants, in the same way that they were treating the other descendants. Ada kind of, in some sense, makes her own curse come true in that people are always going to be distant from her descendants, in part because of what she did, but also in part because of the strategy she chose of being so genetically aggressive towards the descendants of the other women in the room. I'm glad you brought up the curse because I think it's really fascinating how 5,000 years later, 
these conversations have been recorded and so their descendants can hear them word for word and have built up these cultural identities around these interpersonal conversations of people during the epic and the curse did it come true because people would have would not have forgotten that Aida was a violent cannibal or did it come true because it was recorded and people watched it over and over again <laughs> like right. how much of the cultural identity is part of the genetic and attachment to one's eve and how much of it was retelling these same old stories and reinforcing these bonds because there are bonds between Moirans and Teclans and between Dinans and Ivans and then also the animosity. I think Stevenson did a really good job of leaving it open to being in large part cultural, which, you know, was a relief to just not read something that was sort of like racial determinism or something, right? I mean, he makes the point that People celebrate the birthdays of their Eve. They're very, you know, aware of everything she said or did, photos she was in, videos she was in, things like that. So it it seems cultural as well. Uh, yeah, who knows what is predominant? Can I just read the curse for the listeners? Yes, please. I'll try to make it dramatic. <laughs> she says, this is on 563 in my version. This is not a curse that I create. It is not a curse on your children. No, I have never been as bad as you all think that I am. This is a curse that you have created by doing this thing that you are about to do. And it is a curse upon my children because I know, I see how it is to be. I am the evil one, the cannibal, the one who would not go along. My children, no matter what decision I make, will forever be different from your children because make no mistake, what you have decided to do is to create new races, seven new races. They will be separate and distinct forever. As much as you, Moira, are from Ivy, they will never merge into a single human race again, because that is not the way of humanity. Thousands of years from now, the descendants of you six will look at my descendants and say, Ah, look, there is a child of Ida, the cannibal, the evil one, the cursed one. They will cross the street to avoid my children. They will spit on the ground. This is the thing that you have done by making this decision. I will shape my children, my children, for I shall have many, to bear up under this curse, to survive it, and to prevail. I mean, you can't have a, what would we, like a Garden of Eden story without a curse, right? Can't start humanity anew without some kind of curse. So to me, I, I find that very touching because here's a woman who was forced all of the sudden, she is in this central situation. She is going to be the mother of generations, billions of people, a race. And she's done some things that weren't great, that were bad, and that's never going to be forgotten for her or for them, right? Like, think of the weight of that. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, if you have children, if you want children, it's soothing to think of, you know, whatever I have done, I will fix it, and they will not be like they will not be like me in the bad ways and they will get to go forward and have and do better things than I could do and did. But that's not true in the situation she's in, right? I do think it's interesting that she doesn't even think that she could be forgiven. She doesn't think that there's a path of repentance that, that would, I guess, be honored by the other women there. There's something very dark in the belief that you have done something so bad that not only could you not make up for it, right? 
that there could be no reconciliation, not only for you, but that your children forever are going to partake of that evil in a way that they'll never have the experience of reconciliation or forgiveness. And she's right in the in the story that's written. She's she's correct. But I thought it was really sad that they might have created a world where there isn't the possibility of forgiveness or repentance or reconciliation. And she she sees that maybe even earlier than the other ones. That's a sad place. And that's also something that if they really have created a world where that's not possible, I think they actually have lost something that's beautiful about what I think humans are capable of. And maybe the situation has killed that possibility because the stakes are so high for every individual. But I I like to think that there could have been a path for her that wouldn't have made her an evil one and made all of her children evil ones too. But I don't know if Stevenson allows for that possibility. I like the idea that this situation she finds herself in is not an Earth-like situation. I mean, it's so artificial. They're in this historical and genetic bottleneck where all the focus is on them and their actions. Whereas Earth is about complexity, abundance, a literal ability to walk away, right? That you don't have up in space or not in this version of space. And I think that's relevant. I think that, I mean, obviously things would have been different if they'd been on Earth, but even down to feeling the weight and the sort of imprisonment of their own actions, that seems like a side effect of being in these these environments that are claustrophobic, not just physically, but psychologically, historically claustrophobic, right? There's just so much attention and pressure on everything they do. I kind of like that Aida adds this dissension. I wonder if the seven races would have survived if all of the Eves had like been of one mind, you know, like having it built into the culture that whatever that person does, I'm going to try and find the opposite way to do it. I wonder if that pushes them to more innovation, which then means that you have more safeguards, you have more opportunities to survive. I mean, it is some built-in diversity, for lack of a better word, some built-in complexity, because there's going to be seven and really like 11 or 12 when you count the sub-races types of human society, I guess. So in that way, it sort of reproduces some of the complexity of Earth, but then it's not, it's a limited complexity, right? It's intellectual. Yes. That's such a cool idea, Carly. I kind of want to think about that a little more about how having this conflict in terms of not just interpersonal conflict, but conflict in terms of how do you think about something and how do you try to find a solution and what solutions are ultimately satisfying to you that you don't necessarily try to continue to solve, how that's a part of humanity that we needed to keep for multiple generations. If it had all been Ivan's, or I think, is it Camilla at one point that suggests maybe we should just genetically engineer everyone to be the kind of people who get along in confined spaces. You sort of think, yuck, right? (laughs) That doesn't sound like a good idea, but maybe a different group of women or a different group of people would have said, yeah, actually, we need to value the literal survival 
of everyone so much that we can't allow these bigger conflicts, but by preserving not only the history of these big conflicts, but also uh, reinvesting in sort of the the genetic manipulation that's going to preserve these conflicts is actually a, a way of mimicking perhaps what humanity was more like on earth, but also preserving something that is a essential part of the human experience is, is having us and them and trying to create solutions to problems in different ways. I was really glad they didn't listen to Camilla and not make men for thousands of years. Right. Are we ready for genre themes? So, I mean, I think I'll say that this is different from the other solar punk books into in some substantial ways, right? The earth is destroyed for sort of a random reason that's never explained and is no one's fault, right? Unlike most of the solar punk where, you know, it's pretty clear that humans have destroyed the earth in some way, to some extent. Other than that, I think there's a lot of overlap with what is solar punk. First of all, in hope, right? Yeah, I mean, we talked about in The Fifth Sacred Thing, the idea of of trying to make decisions today so that 5,000 years from now, there will be a better society for humans. And then in this story, we get the 5,000 year jump. And so the idea of hope and Doc Dubois, he, I, I keep thinking about him, like he's embodiment of hope, even though he starts out very cynical, he's, he can't, he still gets infused with hope somehow. Like it's so funny in that in a couple of pages, he's thinking about how the human genome archive is a bunch of nonsense. And then he talks to his wife and now he's super motivated to have their embryo preserved in the human genetic archive. It's something that is not part of his conscious will. It's a hope that he, it like guides him more deeply than it's not a choice that he makes. It's just, it's there and it, it affects the way he behaves. And then he ends up it's his idea for them to be on cleft and that's what saves them. So it's an interesting way to think about f- hope and faith in that way for me. Yeah. I like what you said. It's not a conscious choice. It kind of, sometimes it just comes upon people maybe out of a natural desire. Well, and I think also other people are being hopeful, right? It's sort of a passing of the torch. If someone's being hopeful, we don't have to all be hopeful every moment, right? We can let let ourselves get dispirited, but someone else can bring it back for us because they're hopeful at that time. Yeah, I loved the beautiful human weirdness of that section of the book where he makes this shift between saying, none of this is going to work and we're all going to die and everything I care about is going to be gone. But then he like sees a path and then he sees another path and then all of a sudden he's no longer like the people on earth. He's, he becomes sort of a spacer in, in a, in a intellectual sense, right? He, he, he sort of, the, the earth him sort of dies almost. Do I want to make a comparison between the epigenetic shifts that Kath goes <laughs> through and what happens mm-hmm. to Dr. Bois? I'll, I'll suggest it and you guys can shoot it down, but sort of earth Dubois has to die in order for space Dubois to live and to contribute. And he contributes so much, right? He, yeah. he has this quiet heroicism that manifests itself in sort of doing the hard work day after day. But Earth Doc had to die. And 
he even has this character, right? That he says he's outgrown this character of the kind of science guy who's explaining stuff. And so he too sort of experiences these deaths as he goes along. And that's part of what allows him to become the kind of person that gets the people to the cleft in the end. And one of the things I love that Stevenson did is he let Doc Dubois see his success right before he dies. That was a kind of like a beautiful author's gift to his character, right? To to let him think that maybe he succeeded. I love what you're saying about that the connection between you know the death of a former self and the new self uh, is absolutely necessary. I think that's also often an explicit theme in solar punk because unlike you know there there's tropes out there of wanting of not liking our current society but then wanting to go back to a simpler time right go back to something back pre-industrial or you know medieval or whatever and i think solar punk very much doesn't do that i mean cuz you can say i want something different than what this current life is but the option isn't just going back, right? You can pick the things that are good about uh, maybe pre-industrial societies or lightly industrial societies, but then you can still go forward using a lot of the technology and the know-how from this current one. There's a lot of small little deaths in that, right? Like you have to let a romanticized idea of the past go. You have to let the past in general go. Take what you can, what you absolutely need and go forward, which is very much what they did in this story they had to do. I think Tekla is a good example of that too, right? Um, I wish I could find the part in the book where she says it, but she, she's a, a, for the listeners, she's a a Russian character and culturally very different from the other Eves. And she knows that her Russian-ness will not survive, but she also knows that her Russian-ness and the, the culture and the language that she has will basically survive by mingling with all of the other cultures. And you see after the 5,000 jump, there's Russian words that are still used, or there's uh, other sort of evolutions that came from the fact that she was one of those women and she held on to her culture and her identity and and that that actually made a difference 5,000 years later. If, if she hadn't been one of the seven women none of that. You can kind of, I think, make the jump that none of that would have been like that. And and so the preservation of those things that are central to her and perhaps precious to her, they only survive because they get deeply integrated into the other things that are happening, the other languages and the other cultures. Yeah, that's true. So hope, definitely a theme. I think the can-do attitude, also definitely a theme, right? It's not just, you know, society is not just made of like poets and authors, like in a lot of books, right? No, these are like engineers. They are solving problems. They may also have the sentiments and the skills of authors and poets, but you got to do both and everyone has to work and we are building something, right? We're not just feeling feelings about it. We are building. I think that is true in all of the solar punk uh, books. There is a huge importance placed on having a skill and doing the work. We we talked about just being in nature, being rejuvenating um, already. So that's definitely the genre theme. I mean, it's it's been 
every single story we've read, there's a moment where a character stands up and looks up at the sky and feels the breeze. And I think that's hilarious. And I hope it continues. <laughs> I hope we find that in every single book. Yeah, I hope so too. We also talked about this, but another theme is the deep connection between humans and earth in a way that supersedes any particular environmental or historical context. That that one actually was a bit of a surprise to me in Stevenson. Um, and maybe it shouldn't have been, but I feel like he could have written a different book where it was just space, space, space forever. So it was interesting to see him give his characters and, and give the story this sort of earth grounding because there's a, a sense in which someone who loves technology and exploration and engineering that much, it could become a different book. Like there's the people who settled on Mars and then there's the people who just have spaceships that last forever. There are the people who do all these other things that a lot of times in science fiction, you see this getting away from what earth is, but there's clearly a, a focus from him on getting back to something that is Earth-like, even if it can't actually be Earth again. I didn't necessarily expect that. And I think you could read the entire first part and second part and imagine that in 5,000 years, people didn't care about the Earth anymore. But the Earth clearly is a thing that for whatever reason, whether it's genetic or culturally or socially, that's becomes their end game is is getting back to it and reviving it in in whatever way they can even if it has an asteroid belt right even if the oceans will never be the same this desire to come back and make the earth flourishing again all right any other final thoughts i certainly will keep thinking about the idea of something in the past has to die so that we can make the next epigenetic shift and I think solar punk is about choosing, okay, well, what is it going to be? And what are we going to keep? I mean, I think that's a very optimistic perspective that you get to choose what we keep. Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> right? <laughs> they did a little bit, but not as much as they wanted. One thing I thought was interesting about the women's choices is none of the women chose not to do something different with their offspring. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of how much control do we want or think we want over what happens next. And sort of there's a sense in which it shows kind of a dismissal of something that might be a little bit sacred, the idea that you can control what happens and that you should control what happens and your dictates are not a kind of hubris, that you can make a choice like that and predict and somehow feel like you've made the right decision. There's sort of a, a flattening out of this idea that we don't always know what's best or what should be preserved. There's none of that kind of humility here, especially in, in very key moments. And I found myself thinking, is that a result of sort of this engineering mindset that a lot of the characters have? Is that a result of just this deep fear and the need to control something that you can control in these circumstances. But is there a kind of, um, I think another like deep, important human thing that can get lost, this sort of idea that I might not know what's best and I might cause harm instead of making something better. I'm trying to think if there was a moment in a book where I saw a character sort of 
trying to be deeply humble without the limits of their ability to predict the outcomes of their actions. And, I, and I'm not sure there is one. And maybe those are also the kind of people who survive and thrive in these moments are the people who don't have that. I did want there to be a sort of humility about what can we predict about the outcomes of our actions. I thought that was that was something that I found myself thinking again and again when characters would do stuff like you have you have no humility in this moment but sometimes they have to be like that right we haven't talked much about when Sean <laughs> takes his gamble or when Marcus takes his gamble but especially in the first part of the book you I think you kind of need these characters that don't have those moments of doubt I guess critically you'd call it doubt or kindly you would call it humility because sometimes stuff just does need to get done in those moments I feel like that's kind of connected to Ada's curse because I think what she wanted, she wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily about humility, but what she had lost was the ability to have a human heritage from her going forward that she could sort of get lost in. Like what if for her, it was enough that humanity was going to continue, but now she's being told it's your descendants in a very specific way that will always be associated. Like that's a loss. You can love the general heritage kind of wanted to wash out the story of your individual sins. And then she didn't get that, right? That seems related to what you were saying about not knowing how the future is going to unfold. That's actually comforting in a lot of circumstances. And she didn't get that comfort. Well, and I, I was thinking about Julia and, you know, at the at the Council of the Seven Eves, Julia seems so defeated. Like she took this power and then she lost so many lives and then she was violently overtaken by Aida. I mean, they find her with like a metal pole in her tongue so that she can't talk, you know, like just like horrible. And even then, like if anyone was supposed to look back on their life and say, boy, I made some mistakes, I would expect it to be Julia because she's old enough and she's had <laughs> enough experience to be there. And yet she still has her race she says, no, no, my paranoia and my depression are valuable. Humans need these things to be able to survive. And she holds onto that even stronger. And I think that's that's really fascinating. So, but I, I like the idea, like what is what is sacred? Like these seven women, I really wish we had heard from Louisa a bit more in this time period. Like, what was Louisa doing? Because mm -hmm. she was a therapist, a counselor. <laughs> Like, I bet she was very busy. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe it was self-imposed, but it's like, it is your responsibility to make sure humankind survives. And when it's it's on them, how can they not make a choice about the best way to do that, right? Like, I mean, that would be the most extreme form of humility to say, I don't know what it takes. I'm just going to like fertilize some eggs and grow them and hope they do well. Like, it feels almost like an abdication of your responsibility. True. But- I don't necessarily like I don't necessarily agree with that. I do think Christy, I don't want to like I totally agree with everything you said about like we don't know, like accepting your own inability to truly know. This definitely in my opinion kind of an engineer's book, right? There's a number <laughs> of things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like that thing, the uh fulsome descriptions of all the technology <laughs> that they might be using. And then I think also there's probably not enough attention given to how culture would change over time. Like 5,000 years, how much do you think you have in common with someone from 5,000 years ago? But you know, that was, that was one of the conceits of the book and it was a very interesting one. So I was happy to go along. 
I agree completely. I think that he sets up a conflict a couple times between engineer types, and I think he calls them like political types, right? So yeah. it's the sort of the Dinas versus the Julias in a sense, or maybe even the Dinah and the Ivans versus the Julia, Julians. And he clearly comes down hard on the side of the engineers. Yeah. And I, I find that delightful to read. But I also think from listening to your other podcasts in the solar punk uh, season, uh, I think that also makes him a little bit unique among the authors you've read too, is this sort of kind of giving some respect to the tinkers, to the engineers, to the the people who, when you don't have five years to make sure that the rocket is right, get out there with whatever they have at hand and they make the circle fit in the square, right? Because yeah. that's what they have to do. Um, and we didn't talk a lot about the, the adventure that Dinah goes on with Marcus, but it, it, there's a lot of great moments in there of you do what has to be done, even if it means your cancer is going to kill you, even if it means that you're not going to be coming home. Uh, you save the people you can save. And even in little ways, we see that as the men slowly die on endurance, right? They they go out for more walks. They take the more dangerous jobs. And there's even a line where I think he says, and the, the end of every argument is, you, you can have children, right? That you need to be protected because you can do something that we can't. I'll just say I love all of those descriptions of the technology. Again, I think I've said it before, but like, I love them. I love imagining and like how all of the arms of the robots work. And I didn't quite do it, but I, there were several times where I was like starting, I was like, should I draw a diagram of this? But then there were pictures <laughs> provided, so I didn't have to. Like... <laughs> Like I enjoy that so much. It makes me feel so much smarter to read that. And it gives me the impression that maybe I actually know something about engineering. I, I have to remind myself I do not. But like reading all of those very detailed descriptions, I, I enjoy it a lot. But I know a lot of Stevenson fans kind of gloss over those portions too. <laughs> <laughs> I think he does a great job of if you are even a little bit interested, he will get you in there, right? And he will get you excited about the things he's describing. But I think he also, you know, it's very easy to skim a few paragraphs and pick the story story <laughs> up after. But I, I love those too. And I think they give you ideas that you've never had before. Like the idea of experiencing an epigenetic shift so dramatic that you're unrecognizable to yourself afterwards, right? So what are what are the human experiences that are like that? I mean, in some sense... I think puberty is like a shadow of that, right? I think, um, you know, for for some women, being pregnant is is kind of a shadow of that. But to think about, we're going to take this idea that you have a dramatic reaction to your environment. That's a cool idea. And he gives you enough to really think about it. I want to add deconstructing from a faith, like leaving a faith um, is like that too. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a death but there's also something after the death that's different. Listeners, what did you think of Seven Eves? Have you read any other books by Neil Stevenson? What do you think about solar punk? Let us know by recording a voice memo and emailing openingquestion at gmail.com. You can also comment on our Substack, our email newsletter at bookclubpod.substack.com. We will read your responses and play your voice memos on our feedback episode at the end of the season. 
Our next book discussion will be about Earth Abides by George Stewart. Read with us. You can get your copy using the affiliate link in our show notes. The Book Club podcast is produced by me, Caroline Gorman, and Carly Jackson. Music and audio editing by Alex Marcus. Special thanks to our guest, Christy Horpidal. Thanks for listening.